you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, and I'll pick it up at verse 30. Romans 11, starting in verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Skip to verse 1 of chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Would you pray with me, please? Father, indeed, we do ask you to speak to us. Show us Christ and show us what Christ's likeness looks like. We thank you, Father, for this time. We thank you most of all for giving us your Son. We commit this time to you and we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. In the name of God, do your duty. Now for you moviegoers, those are famous words from that legendary actor Gregory Peck in Harper Lee's classic, To Kill a Mockingbird. If you're unfamiliar with the story, Peck plays lawyer Atticus Finch in an early 20th century segregated town in the Deep South. And he's been assigned by the court to defend a black man who's been charged with raping a white woman. Now, as the story unfolds, it's clear that the defendant is not guilty and that actually the white woman had tried to seduce him. But because of her guilt and her racist father's rage at her deep cultural impropriety, she charges the black man with rape. Now, after brilliantly proving his client's innocence, Atticus now has the infinitely more difficult task of convincing an all-white male jury to render a not-guilty verdict. The climax of his compelling closing argument is this line, in the name of God, do your duty. My sermon theme this morning is this, the freedom that Christ has secured for us from sin's penalty and sin's power enables us, indeed compels us to do our duty before God. But what is that duty? Many small D duties jockey for position in our hearts, some high and noble, but others of less importance. But there is one 
overarching duty enjoined upon every believer in Jesus Christ. Indeed, might I say, upon all of humanity. And the question is, what is it? And assuming we actually have the freedom to do it, how do we do it? What are the daily practical steps needed to faithfully carry out that duty? Well, let's begin by highlighting last month's sermon from 2 Corinthians 3. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God in Christ has freed us. He has freed us to behold His glory, which is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ and particularly seen in His death, burial, and resurrection. We once were blind, but now by God's grace, we see our great God in the face of His Son. You may remember I said we see Him in creation. All things have been made through Him. We see Him in the sacraments. He said, do this in remembrance of me. We see him in the church. He dwells in each believer, both individually and corporately as we're gathered. And we see him, of course, in God's word, the written version of the word made flesh. And what happens? What happens when we gaze at the sun? You may remember from last time, we're transformed into his image, just as 2 Corinthians 3 says. And what highlights that image? What is the essence of Jesus Christ as he walked on this earth? May I suggest that his life could be captured in one word. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. His is the sacrifice that fulfilled all the Old Testament sacrifices. He's the Lamb of God who, by that once-for-all atoning sacrifice, took away the sin of the world. Hence, whenever we gather around the Lord's table, what do we do? We proclaim His death until He comes. So as we behold Him, We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another into that essential image, that of a sacrificial lamb. You are being transformed into a sacrificial lamb. And such beholding of the one who laid down his life for his friends prepares us to joyfully embrace our duty. But what is it? What is our duty? What does God essentially expect of you? What does God expect of me as his children? And further, can we be assured that fulfillment of that duty is actually within our reach? Now remember that when you came to Christ, a profound change occurred. Formerly, the Bible says you had a heart of stone, unresponsive, unable to see God. But now, yours is a new heart, a heart of flesh, 
able to see God, able to do God's will. Formerly you were a slave to sin with uncircumcised hearts, which were controlled by that sin. But now you're a slave to righteousness with circumcised hearts inscribed with God's law. Formerly you and I were of the flesh, in the flesh. But now we're of the Spirit, in the Spirit. We're spirit people. And with that change of status, that change of identity, you are now free. You are empowered through His Spirit to fulfill God's law. Not perfectly, of course not perfectly. We sin every day. But nonetheless, characteristically, habitually. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6 just to put a little more flesh on the bones of this freedom skeleton. Romans chapter 6. Paul says it this way in verse 12. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. We were formerly under the law and its condemnation, but now we're under grace and its justification. Thus we're free to present our members not to sin, but to righteousness. For sin no longer has dominion over us. That's who we are. By faith we've died to the law through union with Christ's death, and we've been freed to be joined to another, Jesus. And as a result, we no longer live in the flesh, bearing fruit for death, but we serve in the newness of the Spirit, according to Romans 7, bearing fruit for God. Now Paul makes the same point leading up to our text for this morning. Go back to Romans 11. I want to reread starting in verse 30. Only this time I'm not going to skip any. Romans 11 verse 30, you know that Paul's talking about the interplay between Jew and Greek, between Jew and Gentile, and the you that he talks about in verse 30 is Gentiles, so get that play in your mind, that's what he's saying. For just as you, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, the Jews, disobedience, so they, the Jews, too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
What is going on in that passage? Well, Paul is extolling God's sovereign covenant mercy to all. For once the Gentiles were disobedient, but now have received mercy because of the Jews who were originally shown mercy because of their disobedience, so that by the mercy shown to the Gentiles, the Jews might, through becoming jealous, we learn earlier in Romans 11, jealous of those Gentiles, receive mercy to the end. Everybody shut up under disobedience, everybody shown mercy, both Jew and Gentile alike. And such mercy cannot merely be declared. It must be wholeheartedly extolled. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Yes, a glorious doxology. Perhaps we might say the quintessential sacrifice of praise. But we're not done sacrificing. In fact, we're just getting started. Let's continue. I want you to notice the basis for the sacrifice in verse 1 of chapter 12. Paul says, by the mercies of God. Yes, on the basis of his manifold grace and mercy to both Jew and Gentile alike, a mercy that has set the prisoner from sins free, from sins horrifying penalty, from sins enslaving power, and finally from sins rotting presence. On the basis of that mercy, you and I, recipients of that mercy, are urged to present our lives, our whole selves, as a sacrifice to God. Yes, dear brothers and sisters, you and I are members of a royal priesthood. We're all priests, according to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're summoned to offer up our lives as a sacrifice to God as the supreme act of worship. What was restricted to the temple in Old Testament times is now unleashed through Christ to every corner of the believer's existence. Our duty is to present ourselves to God as a sacrifice. There it is. That's your duty. What are you to do? You are to present yourselves to God as a sacrifice. But what kind of sacrifice? Well, we've got three adjectives that equally, none of the translations quite treat it that way, but they equally modify the word sacrifice in the original. And those adjectives are living, holy, and acceptable, or I think better, well-pleasing. But what do they mean? Well, first, a living sacrifice. It doesn't really set well on the mind, does it? A living sacrifice. It's sort of an oxymoron, isn't it? A living sacrifice. Sacrifices are designed to die, not live. So what's Paul getting at with this idea? Well, it is a sacrifice that remains alive, but ours is a living death. It's a living 
death, comprised of self-denial and cross-bearing. Paul said it this way, I die daily. A living sacrifice is a life that is perpetually dying to itself. Simply put, it's a life that emulates Christ who lived to die. You know, I was talking to the staff last week during one of our staff meetings, and I said, you know, death is kind of a scary thing. That's why we never think about it. We don't like to think about it. My wife won't watch movies with me where people die in the end. She just doesn't like it. She wants to watch happy movies. I get that. I get that. So I watch Spartacus by myself. But, you know, I think one of the reasons that death is so intimidating is because we're not working at dying every day. I mean, if you think about it, if you lived to die, not in some morbid sense, but in following Christ's example, death is kind of an afterthought. I've already crossed that bridge in my mind. So, it's a living sacrifice, but it's also a holy sacrifice. That is, it is set apart. It's consecrated completely to God and to His service, just like an Old Testament priest would be. Obviously, Christ came only to do the Father's will. He was set apart, if you will, and His sacrifice on the cross, therefore, was the holiest act of all, the most set-apart, consecrated act ever done in all of history. And we're to follow that example. Our duty is to present ourselves as a sacrifice that's set apart completely for God's service and glory. Living, holy, and one more adjective, acceptable, the ESV says, or well-pleasing. What is a well-pleasing sacrifice? I want you to think of the Old Testament sacrifices that emitted a fragrant aroma that was pleasing to God. You, you, you read that in the Old Testament. My wife and I enjoy reading about the burning of the fat because uh, the fat was a fragrant aroma to the Lord. See, he likes fat. Uh, all right, that's not a funny joke. I get it. Ephesians 5.1 says that Jesus Christ gave his life up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma. His death was well-pleasing. As, as God took it in, it was well-pleasing to him. So, what is the duty of every believer? Our duty is to follow our Savior by daily presenting ourselves to God as a sacrifice, though still living, set apart and dedicated exclusively for his purposes and conducting ourselves in such a way as to continually be well-pleasing to him. That's our duty, to offer ourselves like a priest, the priests that we are, to offer ourselves as the sacrifice. And how does Paul summarize all this living, holy, well-pleasing sacrifice to God. He calls it, at the end of verse 1, worship. 
spiritual worship in the ESV and NASB, reasonable worship in the King James, or true and proper worship in the NIV. I agree with Doug Moo, who simply translates it true worship. From my understanding, without presenting ourselves to God like Jesus did as an offering and sacrifice, we haven't even begun to worship. We're not even to first base in the ballpark of worship. God is looking for true worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, and such worship always emulates His Son who gave His life a sacrifice for our sins. So our duty is clear, isn't it? As priests of the new covenant, we're to present our whole lives, like our Savior, as a daily sacrifice, of course, without dying physically, completely dedicated to God's purposes and seeking only and always to be pleasing to Him. That is our duty. That is our duty. But how do we carry out that duty? God has not left us without a game plan, without a clear path to presenting ourselves as a sacrifice. It's there in verse 2. I'm going to reread verse 2, if you will. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now in the original, a more literal translation would be, and do not be uh, conformed to this world. And that's a nebulous connection to verse 1. And you could see verse 1 and verse 2 in sort of a coordinate relationship. This and this, sort of on equal footing. But I think verse 2 is really subordinate to verse 1. It's giving us the way, the means by which we present ourselves as a sacrifice. How do we do that? Two ways. First, by not conforming to the world. You know, when I was in pursuit of Christ, I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time, but I was in a Bible study, and I was with a group that valued Scripture memory. So they gave me a little pack of verses to memorize. I looked at them, and they didn't say anything to me. But we had had this verse in, the, in our Bible study that really spoke to me. It said, 1 John 2, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. All that is in the world... Uh, you can see I haven't reviewed it in a while. All that is in the world is not from the Father. The lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, these are from the world. That verse struck me because I thought, that's my life. My life is characterized by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So when he says, do not be conformed to the world, or do not be conformed to this age, I think he's saying we're not to embrace or pursue the lust of the flesh. That's probably sexual immorality, sexual impurity. My goodness, we could spend the rest of the time talking about that, couldn't we? We could talk about the, the epidemic of homosexuality in our country. We could talk about the epidemic of pornography, even in the church. We could talk about the epidemic of premarital sex. It's almost a snicker word. To, to be against that is so old-fashioned and prosaic, isn't it? But he says we're not to embrace or pursue the lust of the flesh. 
We're not to embrace or pursue the lust of the eyes, probably coveting or materialism. You know, I was uh, on the plane yesterday from D.C. to Kansas City, and I was watching this guy on his phone. I was working on my sermon. Well, I was watching this guy on his phone, and, and he was, there was all kinds of items he was looking to buy. At this one point, uh, you could see I was more watching him than working on my sermon. He found some shoes on his phone, and the picture had both shoes, then it had one shoe, then it turned to the side of the shoe, then you could see the back of the shoe, the front of the shoe, the top of the shoe. I can't imagine being so interested in shoes, but nevertheless, that's just me. We're, as David Wells said, living in a society where our priests are advertisers. And everything that we do, you want to know what the value of the internet is? It's a marketing tool. That's what it is. I'm not therefore criticizing it. That's the lust of the eyes. We want, we want, we want. We covet. We're not to embrace or pursue the lust of the eyes, and we're not to embrace or pursue the pride of life. I think of that old bootstrapping kind of an idea. We want to boast in our accomplishments. We want people to know what we've done. Paul says, do not be conformed to the world, to the values of the world. And here's the good news. You and I are free to not conform to the values of this evil age. We're free to resist the devil's lies. And that's always the problem, isn't it? The, the devil takes usually a good thing and he just twists it a few degrees. I mean, there's nothing wrong with shoes. But if you have 70 pair, now we've got a problem, don't we? We don't need a pair of shoes for every day of the month. I don't think. Maybe you disagree. Some of you ladies think well, you know nothing about shoes, Wes. Okay, guilty. I don't. I have a pair of shoes for every day of the month. I'm wearing them right now. You know what I'm saying. The devil takes a good thing and he twists it. He takes sex. Is sex a good thing? Faith, community, church. I know that's, I, I, just, I just made things a little uncomfortable, didn't I? It had been better if I'd have said intimacy. It's a little less edgy. But is it a good thing? Of course it is. And look what, look what Satan has done with it. He's just twisted it a little here and twisted it a little there. And it's perverted. We're free to resist his lies. We're free to listen to what he says and then take it to the word of God just like Jesus did on the Mount of Temptation. No, no. No, no, Satan. Thus says the Lord. We're free to refuse to pursue the world's values, its lusts. By grace, we can say no. That's the first way that we go about presenting ourselves as a sacrifice to God. But there's a second way. Instead of being conformed to this world and its perverted values, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds into the kingdom values and the ethos 
the code of conduct of the kingdom. What does that mean? How do we renew our minds? I think we renew our minds by living out our new status, our new identity. And what is that new identity? As I said before, we're spirit people. We are in the spirit. We're according to the spirit. We walk by the spirit. And based on Romans 8, it says we mind the things of the spirit. We think and consider the things of the spirit. And how might you summarize the things of the spirit? I think the best way to summarize them is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Paul said in Romans 14, it's these things that the kingdom of God consists of, righteousness and joy and peace. We're mining the things of the kingdom. We're mining the, the, the ethos of the kingdom, the code of conduct, what characterizes, what it's going to be like when we're in heaven. Always love, always joy, always peace, always patience, always kindness, always goodness, always gentleness, always faithfulness, always self-control. We're minding the things above. We're setting our minds on the things above rather than on the things below. And as we set our minds on the Spirit's fruit, which characterizes, and as I said, is the very ethos of God's kingdom, we are transformed into that ethos, into those values. Our minds are renewed. And such transformation showcases God's perfection as seen in his good and well-pleasing and perfect will, the end of verse 2. You see, our transformation enables us to prove out what God has been saying all along, the very thing the devil took umbrage with in Genesis chapter 3, that his will, his kingdom ethos is actually good. It's not a bummer. It's not restrictive. It's good. It's acceptable. It's perfect. And why not? Where does that will come from? comes from God himself, right? His will, his law, is nothing more than an extension of his character, seen most clearly, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, that is, by the remaking of our minds through seeking first that kingdom and that kingdom's ethos of righteousness and peace and joy, we demonstrate and prove his glorious character to ourselves to the church, to the world, and to the eternal praise of his glory. We demonstrate Christ-likeness, and it's good. It's acceptable. It's lovely. It's perfect. I mean, go to Galatians chapter 5. Who would you rather be around? The people characterized by the deeds of the flesh or those characterized by the fruit of the Spirit? There's no question that it's good and acceptable and perfect. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a Kansas City Chiefs fan. Wait a minute. 
that boo interrupted my sentence. <laughs> boo at the end of the sentence. But I love to watch Patrick Mahomes. And I really like those State Farm Insurance commercials. <laughs> but I am a diehard Boston Celtics fan. You say, how does a boy from Ohio become a Boston Celtics fan? I've been a Boston Celtics fan for 63 years. Yes, when I was five, I'm 68 now. You say, how did a five-year-old start following the Boston Celtics? Well, of course, my family was immersed in all things Ohio State. And John Havlicek played on Ohio State's basketball team. And they won the NCAA. John Havlicek, Jerry Lucas, Bobby Knight was on that team. And of course, Havlicek, when he went pro, went to the Boston Celtics. So I just followed him right to the Celtics. I wasn't, I don't think I even knew about him before that, but I followed him right to the Celtics. All those glorious years, they won eight straight NBA championships in the 60s. I was just a boy, but I was a big devotee of Bill Russell and Havlicek and Sam Jones. And then in the 80s, of course, with Bird and Parrish and McHale, and even today, they're still good. They're still fun to watch. I think they have a chance to win it this year. But they were also the cause of a fairly significant marital conflict for me in the 80s. I was watching the NBA Finals. The Celtics were playing the Houston Rockets, 1986. Houston Rockets, the twin towers of Ralph Sampson and Hakeem Olajuwon, they just wiped the court up with him. And we had two little boys. I was working full time. I was a student at Dallas Seminary. We had two boys, four and two. And this was my respite. This was my sanctuary. I was watching a Boston Celtics game on the weekend. And the boys are crying. They're fussing. They're, they're being little boys. And Sue calls in, Wes, can you, can you help me with the boys? Now, do you realize what she just did? The grave offense that she committed. And so, stupidly and sinfully, I informed her that when the Boston Celtics were playing in the NBA Finals, I was not to be disturbed. Fortunately, my wife is a godly woman, and she decided to let it pass, but as soon as the game was over, I got a talk from Nanny. What was my problem? I had forgotten my duty, hadn't I? I had forgotten what God expects of me to present myself as a sacrifice to him. That's where we're left today, isn't it? What is our duty? 
your duty every single day, dear Christian, is to identify with your Savior, presenting yourself to God as a living, holy, and well-pleasing sacrifice. There's no days off. There's no timeouts. You're never off the clock. Your duty is to die daily to yourself. Not counting your life as dear to yourself by denying yourself, by taking up your cross, by losing your life for Christ's sake and for the Gospels. And what is the nitty-gritty of this daily presentation to God's to God as a sacrifice, first to not conform to this world and its perverted values, which we're free to do by mortifying the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. In short, by saying no to sin by the Spirit who works mightily within us. And instead, and second, to renew our minds, which again we're free to do because we mind and are to mind the things of the Spirit, the values of the kingdom, described, I think, best as the Spirit's fruit. This is how we present ourselves to God, as living, holy, well-pleasing sacrifices. This is our duty. It's really the duty of all mankind. And so I say to those here that are not yet believing in Christ, you have no capacity to fulfill your God-given duty. The Bible describes you as hapless and helpless and hopeless. That you're in bondage to sin and death and unable to fulfill the purpose for which you were created. Namely, to worship God by presenting yourself to Him as a sacrifice. And this failure... If you persist, this failure will cost you your life, both now and for all eternity. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. You will be judged and suffer forever and ever in hell for refusing to worship Him by suppressing who He is unless you turn from your sin and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone. Listen, you can't boast in tomorrow. You do not know what a day may bring forth. You could be killed on the way home from church today. I know that's a terrible thought, but it's not an unrealistic thought. Or you could die in your sleep tonight. Many people do. You can't boast in tomorrow, but you can begin to boast in the Lord. For if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Oh, dear sinner, let Jesus Christ free you today. Come and worship Christ the King. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved today. And for believers, the question is simple. Are you doing your duty today? Did you know that God had called you to a perpetual life of sacrifice? Or have you somehow needed in 
the American entitlement idea into your Christianity. It's easy to do, isn't it? It's easy to do and thus be conformed to this world. You're to follow your Savior, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And I ask you, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to do that every day? 24-7. Yes, of course it's difficult. Sin beckons us to live, not die. Sin beckons us to live, not die to self. But it's what our Savior did, and it's what he's commanded you to do. So let us decide today that from this point forward your life will be a continual and unabated offering to God as a sacrifice. That each day you will deny yourself for his kingdom. You will die to self for his glory. You will take up your cross by setting your minds on the things above for the display of his good and well-pleasing and perfect will. And when you stumble, you'll repent and get right back on the death path. Let's decide today that we're going to follow Christ. This, my brothers and sisters, and this alone is true worship, and this is your duty. And so I say to you, in the name of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, do your duty. Would you pray with me, please? Father, as we look at our Savior, we are humbled by what he did. That though he existed in the form of God, he did not grasp or view equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even that cursed death on a cross. And we hear his beckoning voice calling us to follow in his footsteps. And we ask that you would help us to stop counting our lives as dear to ourselves and instead put all of our hope 
in the resurrection from the dead, even as he did. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection, which assures us that the day will come when we too shall be raised from the dead. We thank you for that hope. We commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.